All right, so we are diving into the Apostles' Creed. It's going to be about 12 weeks long. We're going to go through the Creed. And um, so many of you, if you grew up Catholic uh, and you went to Catholic Mass, you, you might have recited this Creed, the Apostles' Creed, every, every Mass. You may have said it and maybe you never even thought about what it meant, and, but you just was something that you recited every Sunday uh, in, the, in the early church. And we'll get into the history of the Apostles' Creed, but when the, the Apostles' Creed was written and uh, when it was established... Uh, I, I didn't really mention this at the 9 a.m. service, but it was really connected with baptism. This is whenever the creed would have been recited. They would recite it during baptism, and, there was, and it was broken up into three sections. And, and we dunked people one time, but back then they would they, they dunk you, or you would recite the first section of the, of the Apostles' Creed. They'd dunk you because you were affirming that you believe in these things, and you'd get back up, you'd recite the second you dunk you again, you recite the third, they dunk you again, and you were good to go. And, and, that's, what, and that's, that's the picture of water baptism, that you are confessing your belief in Jesus Christ. That's what it means by going public in water baptism. It is an affirmation of your faith in Christ. And so we're going to study the Apostles' Creed. But before we get into it, I, I just have to, I, I really want to establish why we're doing it. What's the, what, why study the Apostles' Creed? Why, why go through it? And this is what I want to tell you. I believe that the heart cannot embrace what the mind does not comprehend. The heart cannot embrace what the mind does not understand. That you will love the things that you know. You will love more the things that you know more. Very similar when my wife and I started dating. And if you are married here today, you're dating some, someone. When, we, when I first met Estelle, I knew that I wanted to get to know her more. And in fact, that's what I told her when I first met her. I told her, I would like to get to know you. Can I call you? So I called her on the phone. We talked on the first night for an hour and a half or so. And, and, and I liked what I heard. And so then what did I do? I called her back again because I wanted to know more. What was I trying to figure out? Who is Estelle? Who's, who is Estelle Foray? What is, what is her... Uh, uh, her dreams for her life and, and what are her, her desires and her wishes and who did God make her to be? And so as I got to know her more, what began to take place in my heart? I began to love her more. You've experienced that, right? You know somebody more and you love them more. And for some reason in church, in the church world, in, in Christianity and in church life, sometimes we can get to the place where we disconnect and we believe that when you study theology or doctrine, that it's, it's disconnected from your heart and it's just all head knowledge and that's just all religious and all of that. And to me, that is the furthest from the truth. That it is possible to be somebody who says that they love God and show lots of passion, but they don't even know who they're worshiping. They don't know what they're passionate about. They've created a character, a caricature of God that's not even shown in the Bible. And so they, they love a God, but it's not the God of the Bible. You can be passionate and be passionate in error and not actually be passionate about what is true about God. So that's why we study. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we, that's why we come every week. That's why in your quiet time, that's why you read the Bible. Because it's not just cold religious knowledge you're trying to acquire. It's that that knowledge would reach your heart and it would increase your capacity to love God. There's an inseparable connection between our mind and our heart. And it's always been like that. And that's, what, that's how it's supposed to be, that the more we know, the more we love. The more we come to understand who God is, we love him more and more. We see a different facet of his character, of his nature. So our capacity to love God is limited by our knowledge of him. And our beliefs matter. We must, we must know God in truth, not our, not our definition of who God is, not, our, not the definition of culture, not the definition of, of, of what some religious groups say about who God is. What does the Bible say about who God is? And the creed is, should be a reflection. Any creed. There's been many creeds written throughout the, the, the history of the church. And the creed is written for the purpose of affirming biblical truth. So what a creed is. The word creed comes from the root word credo, and credo means I believe. So creeds were written for the purpose of of focusing the church around the central core of the gospel, of what God says, what his word says about God, about the gospel, about man. What are are the central truths of scripture? And that's what creeds were designed to do, to to bring focus to the church. And another thing creeds were, were, were designed to do was to refute error. 
Creeds were designed to be written to where whenever false teaching, which has always come around since the birth of the church, men and women come in and bring things that don't align with Scripture, with the apostles' teachings in Scripture. And so creeds were written that when those doctrines come up, no, well, let's refine. The church says, okay, let's get together. Kind of like in Acts 15, whenever you had the Jerusalem council, And the Jewish Christians were telling the Gentile Christian males that they needed to be circumcised to be included in the church, to be born again. And Paul got the 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 the, a council together and and they they went and looked at what the gospel is. They refined it and said, no, circumcision is not added to salvation. That was a council that was they developed a, a creed, a confession to refute error. So that's another reason why creeds are important. Another reason why creeds are important is because creeds are old. Creeds are old. You know old things are still good? Old things are good. Some of you, you don't, you don't believe you're old yet. Some of you know you're old, right? And, and we don't throw away something because it's old. I think young people today think that they got church figured out and they're the ones who created church. You know, they have all the new, neat ideas of doing church, and, and we do away with religious tradition, and that's all old, and that's for the old people. That's for, oh, that's, that's the furthest from the truth. That's the furthest from, from, from the truth. Our faith was not invented last Tuesday. I didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. Our faith is rooted in centuries and centuries. This creed that we're going to read here in just a moment was written over 1,600 years ago, over 16 centuries ago. Believers are confessing the same thing that we confess today. When I got up here during prayer time and I talked about the risen Christ, we weren't the first ones to confess that. And that's what makes creeds beautiful. I was reading a book on the Apostles' Creed in preparation, one, one of the several books I've been reading. And a man named Ben Myers wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed. And he, he asked the question, who is the I in the I believe of the Apostles' Creed? Listen to what he says. Who is the I that speaks when we make that confession? It is the body of Christ. It is a community stretched out across history. The truest and most important things we can ever say are not individual words but community words, communal words. In confessing the faith of the church, I allow my own I to become a part of the I of the body of Christ. It is then that I am saying something of deep and lasting importance. It is then that my words have roots. Isn't that good? When we confess what others have confessed about Christ for over 2,000 years, we are saying things that have weight to them. You ever been to a wedding ceremony and a couple doesn't want to say the traditional vows and they want to say some ooey gooey mushy thing that they write and it's sloppy and it's like, oh, you don't I close my ears. I don't want to hear that. Right. That's great and all. But, you know, what's even more powerful. Say all the mushy gushy stuff, but say the vows that your mama said, that your grandmother said that your great-grandmother said, right? You see the power in those traditions and those confessions. There's weight behind the history of our faith. So that's why we study the creeds. Now, we don't study the creed like we study Scripture. Okay, I want you to understand this. The creeds are not Scripture. In as much as the creed affirms Scripture, that's when we affirm that it's true. If the creed, if somebody came up with a creed, with a confession of what they believed, and it was contrary to Scripture, well then... We don't, we don't listen to that creed, okay? So we don't study a creed like we study scripture. What, we, what we're going to do is, is the Apostles' Creed is going to be like a foundation, like a framework that will be a launch point for us to go to scripture, just to, to, to study scripture. Over 1,600 years worth of Christians have confessed that these truths are true about God as revealed in his word. We will look at those confessions, we will go to scripture and affirm it and say, yep, that's true, yep. That's true. Yes, that's true. That's what, this is all we're going to do. And, you, and my prayer is, is that as we go through this week after week for 12 weeks, that our love, our, our awe, and our majesty of God will increase. That we'll say, God, how amazing you are. How beautiful you are. The point is just not for all of us to have a seminary degree. I don't have a seminary degree. I hate to burst your bubble. Don't, you know, a seminary degree is a, a master's level degree. I, I don't have that. But what, what I have is, is a desire to learn. What I have is the desire to go into the text and go into the scripture and learn what others have taught for centuries and what is confirmed in scripture and for us to study it together and to grow in our faith. That's the goal. So what does the Apostles' Creed 
affirm? What does it confess? You know, we all have a creed. You, all, you, you have a confession. All of us do. What is your confession? Well, this is what Christians have affirmed and confessed since the resurrection. And this is what the creed will emphasize. We will see the, the Trinitarian nature of God. We'll look at God as all-powerful yet personal, which is what we will study today. We'll see God as our creator, the deity of Christ, that he's fully God yet fully man. He's fully God, though he came as a man. The incarnation, that's when he came through the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He suffered, and we'll see the suffering and sacrifice of Christ. We'll see the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We'll see the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church? Mark your calendars, November 15th. We're going to talk, we're going to declare, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Because you can't believe in God and not believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he's one. We're going to look at the work of the Spirit in the church. We'll look at the Holy Universal Church. Did I confuse you the last couple of weeks in my announcement video where I said the Holy Catholic Church? I did that on purpose. Because that's a part of the Apostles' Creed. That had, there were some changes that came throughout the, throughout the centuries where, where some things were added and tweaked. But we're going to look at the oldest version. And in the oldest version, it doesn't say the Holy Catholic Church. It says the Holy Universal Church. The word Catholic simply means universal. Universal. The holy, we believe in the Holy Universal Church. Universally, everyone that confesses Christ as Lord, the only way for salvation, that he lived, he died, he was resurrected. If you confess that, you're a part of the universal church. No matter where you're from, what you look like, who your mama is, or your auntie, you're part of the universal church. Got it? Holy communion of believers. The forgiveness of sins. The coming judgment of Christ and the resurrection and life everlasting. We're going to study all these topics. Are you guys ready for it? Okay, so we're going to read the oldest version of the Apostles' Creed. This was written around the 2nd to 4th century, so two to 400 years after the resurrection of Christ. It was originally called the Old Roman Creed. The Old Roman Creed. Now, it being called the Apostles' Creed later does not mean that the Apostles wrote it. They don't believe, uh, historians don't believe the Apostles actually wrote it. What, what it means by it being called the Apostles' Creed was that it, 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 it's a creed that, that, that represents what the Apostles taught. So it was originally called the Old Roman Creed. So here it is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead and and, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Universal Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. Do you confess that? Then you're a Christian. Because this is the central truths of the Christian faith. If that's your confession, you are joining the confession of centuries worth of Christians who confess these truths. So the first one we're going to look at today, this is the first confession we're going to look at. We're going to look at the first article, which is we believe in God, the Father Almighty. And there's two thoughts we're going to look at today. God as Father, but God is Almighty. God is Almighty and God is Father. Two views of God that are revealed in Scripture. Two revelations of God as we see in Scripture. That God is Almighty. He's transcendent. He's holy. He's powerful. He's just. He's all of these high things that we see when we think of God, but he's also revealed in Scripture as Father. And this is so important that we understand these things. When we think about God, we need to see him as almighty, because that's how Scripture reveals him. But we need to also know that he can be a father to those who call on him. So here's how I frame these two thoughts of almighty and father. The first way that we're going to look at it is this, is that our God is greater than every idol made by man. Our God, our almighty God that we confess, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, our God is greater than any idol made by man. Did you know today that you are a great idol maker? And I am a great idol maker. Human beings are idol factories. We spew them out like this. Why, we can make an idol out of anything. I can make an idol out of my position as a pastor. I can make an idol out of my wife, out of my kids. I can make an idol out of my time. How many people, they make an idol out of their time and, and you don't get into my space and my time and you get into, you, you, you mess that up and, and, and that is your God, your time. You can make an idol out of money, possessions, stuff, relationships. We are idol makers. We are idol factories. But every 
man-made God, everything that we worship above God is just an idol. Look at what Romans 1 says about this reality that that humans make idols all the time. It says this, that humans claim to be wise, but they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. What is this picture of? That God is immortal. He's eternal. He's holy. He's almighty. He's transcendent. But what do we do as humans? We exchange the glory of that almighty God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We exchange the truth about God and his mightiness and his power for a lie. And we worship and serve creatures rather than creator who is blessed forever. That's what we do as humans. We take the transcendent God of creation and we reduce him down to our, what, what we want to worship. And we, we change his image and, we, and we, we make a God into everything. You know, there's an idea about uh, in, in the world, in, in, in history, of this, there's this idea called of, of pantheism, which is that everything is God. That this pulpit could be a God, and, and I'm a God, and, and the moon and the stars, they can be gods, and, and we worship everything. God is everywhere and in, every, and in everything. It's called pantheism. This idea that everything can be worshipped. And that's what humanity does. We see it in Romans 1. We also see it in Acts chapter 17. Apostle Paul goes to Athens. You remember the story? Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens and, and there's a lot of intellectual elites that are there. And he begins to talk to them and has a conversation. And he wants to preach Christ because wherever Paul went, he wanted to preach the gospel. But he gets into the company of a bunch of pantheists who believed that God was everywhere and in everything and everything could be a God. You worship everything. And in fact, just to make sure that they didn't miss a God, you know what they did? They wrote an inscription. They set up an altar And on the altar, they wrote an inscription to the unknown God, meaning that we want to cover all our bases. There's a God out there that we don't even know yet, but we're going to figure him out. And that's what Paul said. He told them, he said, you love to do nothing more than than to sit around and talk about something new. And when you read Acts 17 and what he's saying there, that reminds us of our culture today. It's always got to be something new. We, we despise the past. We despise history. We despise the revelation of God throughout the history of the church. And we want something new, something, a, a new trend, a new fad, a new God, something new, something new. And Paul came in and he said this to these philosophers, to these pantheists. He said this in Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the, of the Areopagus, which is the place where they'd come and gather and discuss. He said, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship and I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What does Paul do here? What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. (laughs) I love that. Paul said, I'm going to tell you who God is. You've been searching for God and looking for him and thinking he's in everything and and that you're God and there's an unknown God somewhere out there. I'm going to tell you who God is. Are you ready for it? This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul takes it up. They bring it down. They say that God can be a tree. God can be an animal. Paul says, no, God created the tree. God created the animal that you're worshiping. That's Romans 1. He says, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping what the creator God made. He said, I'm telling you, this is who God is. He is the God. The God that I serve is the God of creation. He made the heaven and the earth and everything in it. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands all as though he needed anything. This is the God. And Paul goes on to say in Acts 17, he says, and that God, that transcendent God became personal he came to earth in the form of jesus christ as god the the god man he came as the son of god and he is going to come and judge the world in righteousness and he calls them to repent and actually says that some of them believed but then as it is with the others they said well we're going to think about that some more we're going to ponder some more but god reveals that he is almighty he is the god of creation god is infinite he's all-powerful He is beyond our realm of understanding. There is a transcendence to God. What does it mean that God is transcendent? It means he's above our human rational thinking. We like a God, as we see in Romans 1 and in Acts chapter 17, we like a God that we can control and create and fit into our perfect little bubble box of a God that we like. That's that's what we do, even in the church. 
We create our own little bubble God. He, I, I, I like this. I can, I can work the system. We like to work the system that we create of God. God will not fit into any man-made system. Where does he fit? Right here. These are the parameters. This is how we know God. Next week, we're going to look at creation. We believe that God is the maker of heaven and earth. That's another way God has revealed himself through creation. That's general revelation. But we look at scripture. This is how God has revealed himself to us. This is how we can know him. God reveals himself as transcendent and holy. As Paul said, he is the maker of heaven and earth. And we have to be okay with that. God is trinity. You know, nowhere in the Bible do you see the word trinity or trinitarian. It's not in scripture. But God reveals himself throughout scripture as a trinity, as three in one. He's one God, but he is three distinct persons. I have a picture that will help you and confuse you. Are you ready for it? Here's a picture. This is a picture of the trinity. So you have God in the center. He is one God. In the Old Testament, the Lord is declared as th- that there is one God. Behold, I am one. God is one. So he's one God. But we see that God is manifested as three distinct persons that make up the trinity. So Look, look at the lines here. God is the Son. God is the Father. God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. The Father is God. But the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. Got it? Okay, we can move on now that you got it. What does that mean? It means that, that there is uniqueness in every part of the Trinity. That the Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God, and the Father is fully God, yet they are one. We don't, we're not pantheists. We don't believe in three separate gods, but he is one God manifested in three distinct personhoods that make up the Godhead. And that confession didn't just get made up just recently. This is over 1,600, 2,000, 1,600 to 2,000 years of confession that points to Scripture. Well, where do we see the Trinity in Scripture? We see it in creation. Think back to creation. What does it say in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God did what? Created the heaven and the earth. And then you see in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. And it goes on to talk about the Word that became flesh, which is in the beginning. It says in John 1 that nothing that was made was made without Christ. So you see Christ is in creation. The Father, Christ is in creation. And who else was in creation? The Holy Spirit, you see in Genesis, was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father, God the Son at creation. Where else do you see the Trinity explicitly in in Scripture? Jesus' baptism. You remember when Jesus was baptized? He goes into the water. John the Baptist is going to baptize him. And who's the voice that spoke from heaven? The Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And who descended upon him like a dove? The Holy Spirit. Right? Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Where else you see him? We see him uh, in John 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 14. And he says, Jesus says, Jesus, God the Son, says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is coming whom the Father will send. And he will send him in my name. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And then right before Jesus ascended to heaven, after his resurrection, he says, go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what names? The names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is our God. It's a Trinitarian picture. And what we must not do is this. The doctrine of the Trinity is a divine mystery that should not be tampered with nor reduced to human level explanations. And thereby minimizing the transcendent nature of God. God is not like an egg of a shell and a yolk and a white. Okay, it makes sense to me. I can get that. God's beyond that. It's not like water. What are the three forms of water? It's, my, it's showing you my ignorance. What, what, what is it? It's, it's water. It's liquid, ice, and gas. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's not who God is. He's, he's above that. We try to reduce that down to human level understanding. He's greater than that. He is one, yet he is three distinct persons. Yet one God. And it's okay if your brain goes, because if your brain doesn't go, When you think about God, he's not worthy of your worship. That's who God is. This is the God. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, transcendent, sovereign, in control, infinite, and all-powerful. 
There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is fully and equally God in eternal relation to each other. The Trinitarian view is clearly seen. And when man attempts to take the transcendent mystery out of Scripture and from our understanding of God, that's when false views are born. That's when false doctrine arises, when we try to take the transcendent and to bring it down and to try to make it make sense in every, in every way in, at a human level of understanding. That's when Scripture is twisted. That's when views of the deity of Christ uh, comes into play. We're going to look at that in a few weeks about how there's people throughout church history that have taken the deity of Christ and said that he wasn't even God when he walked the earth. We're going to look at that. And men have said that he wasn't really God when he walked the earth. And attacks on God, his character, his nature happen whenever we don't like the transcendent. We don't, we, we got to figure it all out. There's, there's enough knowledge that God has given us in scripture that we can know about God enough for salvation and for worship. But there's always going to be mystery. It's called a faith. It's called a faith in God. Isaiah 55 says that as far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far God's ways and thoughts are above ours. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You hear that? Where, where does God dwell? From everlasting in one direction to everlasting in the other direction. Where do, where do we dwell? A point in history to an end point in history. And if we're in Christ, then we go to everlasting. But God was before time existed. He created time, and he's never going to cease to exist. He's everlasting. It's, you can't fathom that. Isaiah 44, 6 says, says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God, men of Athens, people of, that, that are described in Romans 1. There is no God beside me. Psalm 115, 3 says, for those of you who don't like the sovereignty of God, Scripture affirms it. Psalms 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Only a sovereign does that. Look what A.W. Tozer says about God's infinite nature and power. This is so good. If God had all the power there is in the universe, except a little bit, right? Let's just picture it. He has all the power, but there's a little bit of a sliver of power he doesn't have. And if somebody else had a little bit of the power hoarded that God couldn't get to. God's like, I just can't get to that little bit of power. Then we couldn't worship God. We couldn't say that God is of infinite power because he wouldn't be of infinite power. He would be just close to it. While, we would, while he would be more powerful than any other being and perhaps even more powerful than all the beings in the universe lumped together, but he would still have a defect and therefore he couldn't be God. Our God, rather, is perfect. Perfect in knowledge and perfect in power and without limits. That's our God. It's the one we worship today. Behold the Lamb. Right? We have limits. Do you have limits like I have limits? You have boundaries like I have boundaries? You know, I ran up into my boundaries. I I ran up into it full speed ahead. I hit my boundaries last week. God demonstrated to me up close and personal that I have limits and I have boundaries. Do you want to know how I ran into my boundaries last week? On a dirt bike. <laughs> I ran into my boundaries on a dirt bike at Matt Carnes' house. Um, so we're over there last Sunday after first Sunday prayer. And, and so the boys, they got several dirt bikes. They're riding around in circles. I'm like, hey, I can ride a dirt bike. My son can. So I get on the dirt bike and I'm going around in circles. And, and there's, this, there's this hill jump, this ramp thing that they have. And, and so, you know, it goes up pretty steep, probably about this high. And... And they're going over, and I saw my son Joel on a smaller bike go over, but he didn't jump. He just kind of went over the hill. And I thought, well, if I can do that. If Matt Carnes can do it and my 14-year-old son can do it, I can surely do it. So I took a 260-pound bike, and I went around the circle, and I went to the base of the hill, and I'm gearing up. I'm ready to go, and I start going up. And all of a sudden, I realize, oh, no, this is a lot more difficult than I thought it was. And what do you do when you're at the, the base of a hill and you're trying to go over it? Do you throttle up or do you throttle down? You better throttle up because if you don't throttle up, what's going to happen is you're going to go up, and then this law of nature is going to kick in called gravity. <laughs> and that's what I ran up against, my limits. Gravity took over, and this 260-pound bike went like that, off the side of the hill. 
And I fell down. I kicked myself back. I fell down. I landed on my tailbone. I got scrapes all over my knees. I couldn't sleep on my back for two nights. I ran into my limits. God's not like us. He's other than us. He has no limits. He has no boundaries. He's not going to run up against any hill that's too high for him. He's God Almighty. You know what's so crazy? Is that we as human beings, we can become proud even, even though we know we're limited. We can become proud in our life even though we know we have limits. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He was filled with pride in, in Daniel chapter 4. Look what King Nebuchadnezzar said here. At the end of the 12 months, King Nebuchadnezzar walked out on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered. And look, look what this prideful man said who forgot about his limits. He said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. God said, all right, buddy, you think it's your kingdom that you made and it's for your majesty and it's for your glory and your power? I'm going to show you that you are limited. I'm going to show you that you are created and I'm going to show you that I'm the one that is really in control and powerful. And God judged King Nebuchadnezzar and he walked on the earth on all fours for seven years. Daniel 4 says seven seasons he walked, which would have been seven years. And he ate the grass like a wild ox, Daniel 4 says. And it says his nails grew long like a falcon, like a bird. He had long nails and his hair was long like a wild animal. And he did that for seven years. The king for seven years. But then he was humbled. His reason came back, and look what, they, look what King Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to where? Oh, that's so good. Where did he lift his eyes to? We lift our eyes to the wrong places, my, my brothers and sisters. We've got to look to heaven. What was he looking at before? His power, his kingdom, his stuff. His authority, his rule. Finally, God got a hold of him and said, I'm here to tell you, it's not about you. I'm here to tell you, it's not your kingdom. You didn't, you didn't have any of it because of your great might. Everything you have is because I've allowed you to have it, O king. The king finally, he looked to heaven. And my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's almighty. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None can question him and say, God, why? Why did you do that? Why did you allow that? God is God and we are not. God has no limits and we do. And may, may we never have to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. May we learn it now. We confess that our God is God the Father Almighty. He is Almighty. So often today, though, God is not treated as holy. He's not treated as Almighty. His name is not revered. His name is used in vain. It's joined with words of cursing. God's name is not honored and revered. God is mocked by Hollywood elites and people with vast fortune and wealth. Just like the intellectual elites in Paul's day in Athens, God is not honored or revered in truth. He's not seen as high and holy. Second Peter chapter 3 says that in the last days, scoffers will come. We, are, we live in a society full of scoffers and they think that, that they have this world, the Bill Gates of the world and, and men like them, the Jeff Bezoses of the world and they think they can control everything by their position and their power and their resources. But God is the one that even allowed them to take a breath on this earth. Scoffers will come and say, where is God? There is no God. We must see God is holy. Prophet Isaiah, he came up against the holiness of God. In the year the king Uzziah died, the prophet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord lifted up high and holy. And what did he see when he saw the holiness of God, the majesty of God? What did the prophet Isaiah say? He said, woe is me. He said, I'm undone, I'm unclean, I have lips that are unclean. And it says that the holy God with seraphim all around the throne came and brought a coal, a live hot coal from the altar and touched the lips of the prophet and cleansed him. 
he saw the holiness of God and he realized that he was not holy, that only God is. We need that view today. We need to see him as holy. The late R.C. Sproul says this about the holiness of God. God's kingdom will never come. Listen. God's kingdom will never come where his name is not hallowed. His will is not done on earth as it is in heaven if his name is desecrated there. In heaven, the name of God is holy. It is breathed by angels in a sacred hush. Heaven is a place where reverence for God is total. It is foolish to look for the kingdom anywhere God is not revered. And I would add, it's difficult to think about God bless America when we look at our nation today. Think about that. It's difficult to say, God bless America, when you look at our country today. We need to see. This is why it's important to study Scripture. This is how God is revealed. He's high. He's holy. He's sovereign. May we stand in awe of His majesty. May we humbly submit ourselves to His authority. Our God is greater than every idol made by man. And I could close in prayer right now. And you would be like, oh, Pastor Ben, whew. How is heavy. But for your benefit, I'm going to continue my message for another 10 minutes. Second thought we're going to look at is this, is that our God is near to all who call on him in truth. He's almighty. I wanted you to feel what you feel in this moment, that God is almighty. But he's father. Think of it. This transcendent God who can't be controlled, can't be manipulated, can't be used for our own ends. He's not the God of the prosperity gospel, right? He's a holy God. He also is a God that reveals himself as Father. And Jesus shocked the Jews of his day in Matthew chapter 6. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? He looked at his disciples and he said, pray then like this. What did he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When they heard Jesus say, our father, they thought this guy is blasphemous. And that's ultimately what they crucified him for. They accused him of blasphemy because he said that God was his father and that, his, and that because God was his father, then that made him the son of God. And so they, they accused him of blasphemy and that's why they sentenced him to death. But he shattered their world. Who was God to the Jews of that day? He was a high, a holy, a sovereign God. You remember in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses, 19 and 20, God tells Moses, Moses, I want to talk to my people. I need to have a conversation with them. I want to tell them some things that are very important so they can't come talk to me like the way they are. They have to be prepared to come into God's presence. And so they have to do ceremonial washings and cleansings. And, 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 and Moses, you need to put a boundary all around the face of, of the mountain, all the way around, and tell the people that they can't, even, they can't cross the boundary them or their animals, if they touch the boundaries, they're going to die because I'm holy. So that's what Moses did. Set up the boundary, cleansed the people. They got there. God came down. The mountain shook. The smoke came. The voice boomed from heaven. And look at Exodus 20 says. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. Absolutely. Wouldn't you be? And trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. We will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So what did Moses do? He became a mediator. A mediator is a go-between. That's what the people said. We need a mediator. The people almost instinctively knew that they couldn't go to God on their own. They needed a mediator. And right there in Exodus 20 is, is where we see. We see the fact that the only way that we can relate to God as Father and He can go from transcendent to Father is that we have to have a mediator. And who's our mediator? It's Jesus Christ, the God-man. There's only one mediator between a transcendent holy God and sinful man. Sinful man who can't cross the boundaries. Without a mediator. The mediator is Jesus Christ. He came in the flesh. He died on the cross for us. And through faith in his son, God adopts us into his family. Don't you love Romans 8? When you've been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ, Romans 8 says that you and I, through faith in Christ, can cry out, Abba. Abba, Father. The word Abba was a term of endearment, just like my kids would call me Daddy. Such a term of endearment. Not just Father, the formal term, right? 
But Abba, an endearing term. We can cry out because of the mediation of Jesus Christ. We can cry out to this transcendent God, this holy God, and say that you are my father. I could come before you. You know, I think I'm a pretty good dad. You know, i got one of my kids right here, and I think I'm a pretty good dad. If I'd asked Joel to tell you all my faults, he could give you a list of them, but I think my, my good outweighs my bad. I'm a pretty good dad. And there's lots of things, there's really nothing I wouldn't do to make sure that he's protected and safe, and there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make sure that he's provided for, and I, and I give him good gifts. I give my kids good, good gifts. I'm a pretty good dad. But our Father, listen to what Matthew 7 says. Jesus talks about me here. And all you dads that are in here, he says, which of you, if he has a son, the son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? No, because you're a good father. Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, well, thanks, Lord, for cutting it straight for me, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? It's, it's, the, it's the argument from the lesser to the greater, right? We are evil as, as flawed, limited fathers. But he's saying, my father God can be your father God through faith in me. And my father God who is in heaven, he gives good things to those who ask. Amen. I'm preaching myself happy. I don't know about you guys, but, but, but just think of it. Just think of it. Stop. Think. Our God is holy. Who dwells in an unapproachable light. Without mediation, we can't go near the mountain. There's a boundary that we can never cross without The mediation of Christ. He's holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. Our God who reveals himself as infinite and sovereign. Who cannot tolerate evil. Our God who is perfectly righteous. Perfectly just. Our God who is unchanging in his character and nature. He's also revealed in scripture to us as father. A good father. A perfect father. Some of you here today you think well. My relationship with my dad clouds my view of God as father. I can't see God as father because I'm seeing it through the lens of my dad. Or I'm here to tell you, your dad was never going to be as good as our heavenly father. He was always going to fall short. Always. God is the only perfect father. He's the only perfect role model. The only perfect one. Pastor Buck Parsons says this about praying to our father God. We are not to regard him as some sort of distant authority figure who doesn't listen to us, who is never around, who is too busy for us. Rather, we can always, sons of God, we can always at any time, day or night, cry out to the creator and sustainer of the universe, the sovereign, triune, and almighty God. And we can humbly and confidently pray our Father. We're not not deist. A deist is somebody who believes that God is, is creating, he's powerful, but he's off in the corner, and he had a series of dominoes that he put out, and he, 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 he kicked, started creation, and then he stepped back and said, okay, we'll see how this goes, and I'll intervene when it's time. Scripture doesn't reveal that picture of God. It reveals an almighty, sovereign, powerful God who broke in to his creation. And said, I love you so much. And I'm coming to die for you. That's our God. Infinite, yet personal. Transcendent, yet approachable. For some of us here today, we have a low view of God. Which is the wrong view of God. We're God shrinkers. We're God shrinkers. We like to have control in our life. So we, we have a low view of God. And we need to be reminded today of his infinite nature and holiness. We have been treating common what is holy. I want to encourage you with that. Let's not treat what is holy as common. This is holy. What we're doing right now, talking about God is holy. When we worship and we sing songs, hey, if it's not the song you like, or the way it's played is the way you like it, that's a holy moment. It's a moment where we get to take words about our God And lift them up to him. Because we can have fellowship with him. That's a holy moment. It's not common. Our fellowship with one another. Right? You had a parenting class. A lot of you that are here right now are in that parenting class. That's a holy moment. Because brothers and sisters are gathered together in fellowship. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as is the habit of some. 
It's not because it's legalism. It's because it's a holy moment. Because when brothers and sisters gather, the God himself is in our midst. And his spirit is amongst us. So for some of us here today, we need to quit treating what is holy as common. And others of us here today, you also have a wrong view of God. You do see him as high and holy and transcendent and sovereign. But you struggle to believe that he cares about you and your life. You think God's just too busy with other people's things and other people's stuff. And he doesn't really care about me. You need to be reminded today that if you're a child of God, he cares about everything in your life. Bible says, the book of Psalms, that he has every head of hair on your head numbered. Even Vern. Even Vern. Who shaves him off. God gets down to the follicle level. <laughs> he knows every hair on your head. That's our God. Amen? So why do these things matter? Oh, this is so, so necessary. Why, why do we study the sovereignty and the mightiness of God and his fatherhood and all that? Why does it really matter? Because it really, it really impacts our life. If you have the wrong view of God, when you come up against situations in your life that are too difficult for you to handle, you don't even know where to turn. Where do I go? It's out of my control. I can't handle it. If you don't have a high view of God, then you wear this weight on your shoulders like, I've got to fix it. I've got to make it work. I've gotta, if you don't know that God is, has not forgotten you, nothing is out from under his control, and if that messes up your brain, I, 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 I hope it does. But because it is such a beautiful place to rest, in the middle of cancer, in the middle of Hurricane Laura, in the middle of whatever situation I'm going through, I can say, God, I know that you haven't forgotten me. God, I know that you haven't abandoned me. God, I know that you are with me. You didn't just leave us here on our own. You're our Father. That's why these things matter. I want to end with this story to illustrate it. Have you ever been on an airplane and it gets turbulent? Have you ever been there? I was on an airplane one time with Pastor Renee, and we were coming back from a, a marriage conference. Uh, this is right before I became pastor. So there's nothing, you know, the, the church, you guys found out I was becoming the pastor. We were a few months away from me becoming pastor, so, something like that. It may have been longer than that, but... We knew that was coming, so we're in the airplane. I'm with my wife, and the plane is shaking. We're flying into New Orleans. It's, it's a little rainy. You know when the plane drops, and your throat goes in your stomach, and your stomach goes in your throat, right? Whichever direction it goes, you, whew, you drop. And So it was really bad, one of the worst I've ever been in. And I look over at Pastor Renee, and he's holding on. And after we landed safely, he, he looked over at me, and, and, and he said, he said, we were going to be okay because God has plans for us. <laughs> he was like, I'm going to retire. <laughs> God has plans for us. I was like, I believe that. But I want to tell you a story of a, of a lady that was on a turbulent plane. She's on a flight that's going crazy. The plane is dropping and, and it's shaking and it's rattling. And she's nervous and she's holding on to her seat. And she looks over to her right in the middle of the chaos. And there's this little boy. He's got his iPad out. And he's flip, flip, flicking and touching and looking at a video and just looking at his iPad and singing and the lady's getting annoyed. That boy won't stop. Doesn't he understand what's going on? We're all about to die. So she finally gets up the nerve to look at the boy and says, what are you doing? Could you please stop? Don't you recognize it? Like, this is scary. And the boy, as respectful as he could, he looks over at the woman and says, lady, my dad's the pilot. My dad's the pilot. That's my message. My dad's the pilot. What does that teach us here today? We confess today what scripture affirms. Our father God is not only the pilot, but he's the manufacturer of the plane. That's, that's what this message is all about. He's not only the pilot, but he's the manufacturer of the plane. That's one way to confess it, but how did Christians confess it for over 1,600 years? We believe in God, the Father Almighty. Just stand your feet with me. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask, there may be some individuals here that, that you're not in relationship with the Lord. You haven't 
receive the mediation that God provided through His Son, Jesus. And you know that you can't, you can't from the depths of your heart, come to God as your Father because you haven't received His Son. And you know that that's you. You know that you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life. And, and, and you want to make that decision today. You want to place your faith in Christ. And what that means is, is that you're acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, and that without salvation provided for through Christ, that you, there's no hope for you now and in eternity. If you acknowledge that and you understand that here today, that you would, you, would you lift your hand? Is there anybody here today that wants to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is there anybody? I give you that opportunity. The hand raising is just a, a way for you to, to show the Lord what your heart looks like. And if you don't want to raise your hand, you can do this in the quietness of, of, your, of your heart right now. Confess Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and was raised from the dead, you'll be born again. If that's you today, make that decision. Confess Christ. And I would encourage you to go public with your faith the way that the church has always gone public through water baptism. If you confess Christ, get baptized in front of your church family and confess him as Lord and we will celebrate your new birth. And if that is you today and you are confessing Christ, whether you've done it recently or you're doing it in this moment, I have two books for you I want to give you. One is called What is the Gospel? It's a book that describes the, the, the gospel in a little more detail than what I did. A very good book. And there's another book called Training, How Do I Grow as a Christian? And if that's you and you want to receive those books because you're a, a new believer or you're confessing Christ right now, that's our, our gift to you. You can go to the welcome desk to receive those books. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we can pray to our Father as Jesus commanded us to in, in Matthew chapter 6. We thank you for the revelation of who you are as sovereign and holy and transcendent. But Lord, we also thank you that you broke through the heavens and you became one of us. A transcendent holy God that became personal, that came down to his creation. And we thank you for, for who you are in Christ. And God, I just pray that, that we would rest in this revelation of your power and of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I love you. I'll see you next week.